a science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt And I just thought, well, it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. Before we get to the story this week, a quick note, we're running an audience survey. It would really help us out if you would go to storycollider.org slash podcast and click on audience survey. Thanks. This week's storyteller is Ilana Lancaster. Ilana is an LGBT health activist, a nice Jewish queer, and a big, huge dork. He studied biology and linguistics at Stony Brook University and works in reproductive health and public health research. The story was recorded in December 2011 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. So I'm a freshman in college and I'm sitting in this giant intro chemistry lecture. Uh, It's got about triple the number of people that my entire high school did. And it's this like anonymous freshman nightmare Um, We actually printed out pieces of paper with barcodes on them that they would scan and use to take attendance. And I loved it because no one knew what I was like when I was eight. No one knew what homework I didn't do in seventh grade. Um, But eventually, I started to see the same people twice. And this sweet, dorky boy with a ponytail asks to sit next to me in class, and we go out for coffee. And then we start dating about the beginning of the next semester. So now it's Valentine's Day, and we've been dating for a few weeks, and we're 17 and 18, so of course this means that we've said we love one another, and (laughs) we've talked about marriage and babies, because that's what you do, right? And we're totally swept up in one another, but we're still pretending that like we're above this, you know, fake romantic Valentine's Day crap. So we go to the grocery store to get stuff to cook dinner together. Um, and we total my car. We're both okay, but we get back to campus and we're curled up in bed trying to wind down after this, and my boyfriend turns to me and says, I know this isn't a great time, but I have something to tell you. And of course, these are like the, the only words that could possibly make me tenser when I'm already worried about how the fuck I'm gonna tell my parents what happened to my car and how I'm gonna commute to school. Okay. My boyfriend says, have you ever heard of gender dysphoria? Yeah, I think I read a novel once. I saw a couple of episodes of Jerry Springer, which are always an excellent educational tool. So I, I know where we are here. Like transgender, right? Like people who start out one gender and then they're really another. And he says, that's me. I've known for a long time that I should have been, that I really was a woman. Okay. So my mind is turning over, trying to figure out, you know, what are the words that one says next in this moment? Uh, And fortunately, I actually, before I figured out what the right thing is to say, I hear myself say, well, I guess now's a good time to tell you that I'm bisexual. This this may be the only time in human history that talking before you think worked that well. (laughs) So she's really relieved. Um, I'm I'm okay, but I 
kind of still don't know what this means for us. Um, so we talk long into the night. We stay up ridiculously late talking, and I'm asking lots of questions, and we cry a little bit, and we hold one another. Um, and she's really clear that even though this is something that she knows about herself, and this is something that she felt was important to tell me because she loves me, she's not going to transition. She knows this because that the idea of uprooting that many people's expectations of her, it's just, it just doesn't seem like it can happen. But over the course of the next few months, it becomes really clear that not only is this something she can do, but it's something that she needs to do. Um, there was one night we were reading a webcomic together. Oh, young dorky love. <laughs> and there was this joke about hipster boys stealing their girlfriend's pants. And one thing led to another. We were the same size, and this was when I still wore girls' pants. And we ended up going to dinner dressed in one another's clothes. Um, and I saw her catch a glimpse of herself in a darkened window. And the look in her eyes when she saw that reflection was happier than I had ever seen her before. And I knew that there had to be more of that. Other things started adding up, like the way that she reacted when someone called her miss at the grocery store and the way that her voice caught when I called her beautiful. So I asked more questions and we talked some more and I read every book in the library about trans issues. Um, and we decided that things needed to start changing. But change is kind of tricky. Even when it's something that's really welcome and that you're really looking forward to, it's also scary as shit. And some of the things that were changing, you know, even though it was wonderful to watch her become more comfortable with herself and get to know herself better, some of the things that were changing were things that I liked the way that they were in the first place. But most of the stress was actually that I couldn't tell anybody. Um, she, I was the first person that she told, and it wasn't information that was mine to share if she wasn't sharing it. But then she told her parents and she told some of her closest friends. Um, I got to tell my best friend from high school who reacted incredibly supportively, especially considering that she is an Orthodox Jew. Um, she actually, for my girlfriend's next birthday, got her this froofy pink card that said, it's a girl! <laughs> <laughs> Which my girlfriend loved to pieces, even though she wasn't big on pink. Um, I told my parents who reacted so over the top badly that it would have been funny if it hadn't been heartbreaking. Um, and there was this process, this really weird process where our internal relationship dynamic was exactly the same, but everything about the way that people were perceiving us was changing because of the way that they were perceiving her. So suddenly we're not getting that approving glance that like old people like to give, oh, young people in love. And we have to be careful now where we hold hands and where we kiss because it's not safe everywhere. Um, the pizza guy no longer thinks that the three slices that I ordered are for both of us. But unfortunately not just because he realizes I'm hungry, but because he can't picture both of us as a couple. So it's, it's kind of like we stumbled into this controlled experiment, like all the variables are the same except for one, and ta-da, straight privilege exists. And in some ways it's validating because, I mean, that it shows that she's being perceived the way that she wants to be perceived, but it also just sucks. So even though it's kind of hard, it's also really obvious that this is the right thing to be doing. She's happier, she's more comfortable, um, and 
she decides as the next semester is coming up that it's she wants to start transitioning medically by taking hormones. So we find an endocrinologist, we do the research, she gets her signed, sealed letter of approval, and there's just one thing standing in the way, and that's that whole baby's plan that we had. Because her sperm is gonna become a limited addition very quickly if she starts taking estrogen, and that's kind of an issue. Uh, fortunately, medical science has something of a solution. You can actually freeze sperm. Contrary to what a surprising number of people believe, you cannot accomplish this using an ice cube tray to jerk off in. <laughs> um, you actually need trained technicians and liquid nitrogen, pipettes, all sorts of sciencey accoutrements, but most surprising, you actually need a prescription probably because of all the rampant, frivolous sperm freezing going on <laughs> among kids today. And getting a prescription is not a trivial thing when none of this is covered by insurance. Uh, getting a prescription means another $200 visit to her endocrinologist, but he writes it. Uh, he doesn't have much information to help us from that point, though. He's like, check the yellow pages. They don't have an entry for this, I can tell you now. So we make an absurd number of phone calls, and finally we find a fertility clinic that's willing to take this prescription. Um, we haven't really told them anything else about what's going on, but they'll take the prescription. Okay. So I immediately proceed to try and find out as much as I can about what this is going to be like, which the clinic won't tell us, so Dr. Internet is my best bet. Um, and my usual sources of medical internet wisdom were not being very forthcoming, so I ended up reading probably all of the infertility blogs on the internet, um, which there are a lot of because it's not something that people really feel that comfortable talking to the people they know about a lot. So I'm basically guessing like really crucial pieces of information like how many vials of sperm to store, how many vials of sperm equal one potential baby in like 10 years? Like what, what is this equation? I'm basically guessing from things like how many vials of sperm people buy when they find a donor that they really, really like. Um, so we're still a lot more in the dark about this than I'd like to be when we walk into the clinic for the first time. And we walk into the waiting room and it's like we have descended into an alternate universe where everyone is middle-aged and straight and very professionally dressed and the urge to have a baby right this minute is practically coming off of them in waves. You can really almost see it in the air. And every head turns, because what the fuck are we doing there? Um, it's really clear we are not one of them. So, you know, we're young, we're weird looking, we're really off balance because she's dressed as a boy for the first time in several months. Um, it was a strategy to kind of try to avoid some of the discrimination that trans people often face when dealing with medical professionals, but it doesn't mitigate that we're young and weird looking, and it makes us both really uneasy because I feel like I'm sitting next to a time traveler who has the same voice and body language that my girlfriend did before things changed that I kind of miss, and this is probably the last time I'm going to see her like this. And it's also incredibly sad because it's chased away this, all of this confidence that she had finally found. So this is a great time to find out that this is actually gonna cost a lot more than we thought because not only do you have to pay for storing it and freezing it and analyzing it, 
but you have to pay for every sexually transmitted infection test under the sun and get tested for like all the genetic diseases that we know how to test for because they won't freeze anything if it is not pristine. Never mind that many people blissfully ignorant of whether they carry Neiman Pick knock each other up all the time. But <laughs> this was not a right that we were going to be allowed to have. Um, so we made the money work. Um, I chipped in with my wages from teaching Sunday school at my childhood synagogue. <laughs> if only the rabbi knew. <laughs> uh, she had three jobs, one of which was as a personal care attendant to a paraplegic, which meant that at 6 a.m. on Saturdays, I would wake up and drive her to this guy's house so that she could do the very necessary but also highly unglamorous task of sticking her finger up his butt to help him shit. You can laugh at that if you want to. <laughs> um, but you do what you have to do, and we make it work. And finally, we're ready to start this process in earnest. Um, the clinic still isn't making it easy. They, by now, they know why we're there. They obviously still don't get it. Um, and they talk to my girlfriend because they have to. But I am too much for them to deal with. They can't even look me in the eye. As far as they're concerned, I don't exist. I am not a person, certainly, sitting there in their waiting room, which is weird when you are actually standing there holding someone's hand, following a clinic staff person back to actually start freezing the sperm. Uh, clinics have a room that is devoted to this process. There are lots of fun euphemisms. This is called the collection room. It's basically a large closet full of porn. It's also got a chair. You don't want to touch any of this. Um, I'm not a squeamish person. Really trust me when I say this. You probably don't want to wear shoes that you really like either. Um, and even if you can get past how gross just the existence of the room is, you're not going to find any porn that you like unless you happen to favor what the HR guy at the clinic bought on sale that week. <laughs> Um, you can make a deposit of a sample at the collection room every two to four days if you don't ejaculate in between, which is why I was there, because if it wasn't there, we weren't going to be having sex for a while, which seemed very important when I was a horny teenager and maybe wasn't worth it looking back. But we didn't touch anything, and survived the ordeal unscathed enough to come back to do it again like a few more times. And one of those times, um, my girlfriend was meeting with one of the nurses at the clinic to probably get the results of one of these interminable tests. And I just totally lost it in the waiting room. I am sitting in this squeaky vinyl chair, sobbing my eyes out uh, because A, just the accumulated stress of this whole thing is and of being treated like I'm not a person at this place is getting to me. And B, I am convinced that I am pregnant. Um, I am sure that I am pregnant because, of course, now would be the time. It is the most inconvenient, most ironic possible time that this could happen. And I have been kind of feeling like my life was being scripted by some like demented soap opera writer. <laughs> so duh, I'm pregnant probably with like 
a demon baby that's my you know grandmother's twin or something. But the pregnant part, I'm real sure about. Um, I'm crying. And finally, something clicks in one of the clinic staff, and they, she comes over and she brings me a glass of water, which was exactly what I needed in that moment, was to feel like someone saw me and acknowledged me as a person. And that glass of water was enough that I could pull myself together to take the train home, you know, dry my eyes, and find out that I wasn't pregnant. Um, and I didn't go back to the clinic again after that because someone who's that stressed out themselves is not really a useful support person. And my girlfriend already had enough to be stressed about. So she went back a few more times and we stored enough sperm that she and I both had peace of mind about our future hypothetical babies. And, uh, and then she started hormones. And these, this whole new set of amazing changes that she'd been waiting for started. We broke up about a year later for totally unrelated reasons. Um, we're still in touch. She is engaged and I'm really excited to dance at their wedding. And we're the kind of exes who actually just yesterday had a really corny conversation about how lucky we are to know one another. Um, I don't actually know if she and her future wife still have the sperm on ice. Uh, I, I kind of imagine that they must, just because of what a pain in the ass it was to get there. And throwing it away after all that seems like a real waste. <laughs> Come on. Like, but, and you know, it's up to them. If it is part of their future plan, um, I'm happy that I could help in my way to make that an option for them. It's probably not a story I would tell their kids. <laughs> um, and now six years after uh, the sperm freezing happened. It's a lot of the things about the story that seemed really surreal and strange to me at the time are really every day. I'm part of this amazing queer and trans community. I actually work at a fertility clinic, not too far from the one that we went to, not the same one. That would be way too weird. Uh, so I now have the privilege of being the stranger in a lab coat who takes people or panicked people back to the collection room which is how I know about the HR guy buying the porn. <laughs> but mostly what I really like about having the job that I do is that I know if 18-year-old me walked into that clinic that I work at, I could be there from the beginning with a glass of water. Thank you. That was Alana Lancaster. For more science stories, come see our live show. Our next event is January 24th at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme is The Wilderness. For more information, take a look at our website, storycollider.org, where we also have archives of the podcast, videos, and ways to submit your own story if you would like to be on the show. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, and Aaron Barker, with assistance from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, Luke Davin, David Gaines, and Aaron Wolfe. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Rose Avalith for the intro, to Union Hall for hosting the show, and to Snow for not being near me yet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>